1: My only
2: object in being here is to try and get at the truth.
3: Where shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I could have been a contender. Fasten your seat. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm going to make him an awful deal. All real, men. Love is... is Too weak a word.
1: for back. I, love you love
4: love. I, I loathe you. I, I you love you. I love
3: you <laughs> 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 I did as a
1: If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instruction. This ain't reality TV!
3: Respect it! Invalidate it! Remember that you told me! It's time,
1: Robbie! Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast.
3: And the Oscar goes to Parasite.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 203 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Neglia. Time of recording, 1123 a.m. on July 19th, 2020. Here to join us today, we have Michael Schwartz. Hello everyone. Kaya Shinyatta.
4: Hello.
1: Dan Bear. Good morning. Cody Derricks. Hello. And Tom O'Brien. And West Coast here. Absolutely, as always. Thank you so much Tom for always getting up at the crack of dawn for us. We really really appreciate the dedication that you bring. Thank you. So, this week, everyone, uh, we're talking about a couple of different things. Uh, We have a trailer to discuss for the new film Possessor coming from Neon. Uh, We have some brief news to go over. Uh, We have some major news to go over regarding the film festivals this year. And we're also going to answer some fan questions, go over the polls. You know, the usual routine that we do here on the Next Best Picture podcast podcast. Right off at the top of the show, though, I'm going to ask everyone to go around the room. Let's start off with Tom. Tom, what have you been watching this
2: week? Well, I haven't seen too much, but I did catch a a very interesting documentary on Hulu, which premiered this week called We Are Freestyle Love Supreme. Oh. It's about a rap improv comedy group that started in New York, you know, very loosely in 2001. Uh, It's all of our Hamilton friends are here. It that uh, was created by uh, Anthony Veneziali and Tommy Cale, who directed Hamilton. Nice. They brought in Lynn Manuel Miranda and Christopher Jackson and uh, a bunch of other really talented people. And they began to you know be, be get word of mouth and this thing kind of grew and it wound up on Broadway this past winter. Um, it's a fascinating thing about about this particular subgenre of uh, rapping. Because you improv, I find impossible to, uh, I can't do it. And I'm just uh, amazed at the people who do. And here they have to improv comedy and make it rhyme. And it's, it's, it's quite something. Uh, it's, it, just to see the camaraderie among the uh, participants has been fascinating. And to see footage of Lynn and Chris Jackson uh, almost 20 years ago starting this thing up. Uh, is, uh, is really fun to see, particularly if you're a big uh, fan of Hamilton. Uh, there are other people who've come in and out of the group over the years. Um, one, James Monroe Eichelhart, who's won a Tony for Aladdin, and uh, David Diggs, who unfortunately is not a scene performing in here, but a scene in photographs. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a really entertaining, fun uh, 90 minutes. You're in, you're out, and it's uh, just a, kind of a delight if you're in the mood for something fun.
1: Very cool. Awesome. I mean, especially for those of us that are on a Hamilton kick nowadays, myself included, I now have watched that <laughs> damn show eight times on Disney Plus <laughs> at this point. Uh, I know. I know. Seriously. But that sounds like a really cool recommendation. Kaya, what about you?
4: Um, I watched a lot this week because it was my birthday, so I decided to treat Yay. myself. Yay. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I watched Mysterious Skin for like the fifth time. Fantastic mm-hmm. as well ways rewatched the 2013 evil dead rewatched the first two saw films and then some new watches i watched first cow you can check out the podcast that we did yesterday and i loved it and then i watched the old guard which i surprisingly liked other than that god awful soundtrack and then (laughs) last night i rewatched annihilation for the 21st time
0: Uh, (laughs) yeah love that movie
4: that's a lot of fun so good
3: All right, cool. Michael? Yeah, this was one of those weeks just busy with work and a bunch of other things, and I actually didn't see any movies.
1: Yeah, yeah, I kind of feel similar to you. I didn't see no movies, but definitely lighter than usual, especially considering uh, we came off of such a hot weekend previously, and this weekend it was kind of slim pickings in terms of new titles to watch, so I feel that. Dan Baer?
0: Uh, I saw quite a bit this week. Um, I I like Kaya, I also saw First Cow. Um, please listen to our podcast that we did yesterday on that because it's a really good movie and it was a really interesting podcast. Um I also watched a thing that was just released called Dirt Music, um, with Garrett Headland and Kelly McDonald, and it is very beautiful to look at and incredibly boring to watch. <laughs>
1: So, dirt movie.
0: <laughs> um, I guess you could say that, yeah.
4: Um,
0: and I watched a film that got a lot of buzz on a film Twitter called Relic.
1: Oh, yeah, I watched that too.
0: Which is um Australian horror. I say horror, but I say like horror ish uh, mm-hmm. movie. It shade lots of. Shades of the Babadook and um, uh, Hereditary, but it never quite gets as uh, high pitched as those movies. It, it's very much in a lower register and uh, kind of low key horror, I guess. But like it, I was stunned by it. The acting is incredible, and um, the 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 central visual metaphor of how it's um, depicting uh, dementia and the way your brain sort of leaves you in your later years is really stunning. Uh, Really, really great stuff. Highly recommend. Um, But, however, after watching that movie, I was so traumatized that I need to watch something um, warm and comforting. So I watched, (laughs) for the first time, believe it or not, uh, Sleepless in Seattle.
2: (laughs) What? Oh,
0: nice. Oh, I just watched <laughs> oh. it recently too, Dan. It's so nice. <laughs> Which, it's such a... It's the cutest damn movie about stalking you ever saw. Yeah, that <laughs>
5: movie really is lucky <laughs> as Meg Ryan to make you, like, charmed by that behavior. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, it's really, like... She, they meet on at the Empire State Building at the end, and I'm just like, okay, Tom, this is the part where you run and tell the crops about the crazy lady who's stalking you <laughs> like but somehow like my brain is saying that but my body is smiling and crying and this is so wonderful and sweet and yeah i don't know how it does what it does but it it's a delight
2: all right
5: cool cody um, so I'm just looking at my letterbox now and I'm like, I don't know what I was doing this week. It is a weird collection of films I watched. Uh, I didn't watch anything from 2020. I'm just not, I just haven't been doing that lately. Uh, my big thing I did watch this week was I, or an article I wrote for the website that should be up, uh, in a, you know, a, 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 the next week or It'll so be up probably. in a few days. Yeah. Um, yeah. I went through all of Willem Dafoe's Oscar nominations uh, for his upcoming birthday, and man, that guy is a good actor. Um, He's pretty damn great. (laughs) I personally would have given him at least two of those nominations uh, wins myself if I was a voter. Um, And it really just solidified that I think based on how odd all of his nominations are in their own way, whether because... It's not the type of role the Academy usually goes for, or he's the only recognition for his movie, or there wasn't a lot of precursor love. You can tell that he's really loved in the industry no matter what he's doing, and in those films, he's always good. So I just – I really think it's kind of – I say hopefully inevitable because you never know, but like, I, I really do think one day we'll see him holding an Oscar, and I, I imagine it'll be for the – one of the least likely Oscar-winning films we've ever seen. Either
1: that or it will be something very typical and we'll be like, oh, we, we gave it to him for this right, over yeah. all these other great ones we could have done. Yeah, that's usually the way it goes. Uh, for myself, um, as I uh, mentioned before, I watched Hamilton for like the eighth time. I'm, I just uh, – help, please, somebody
5: uh-huh i think you're helpless
0: there <laughs> is no help i'm I think
5: you're
3: sorry helpless.
0: Yeah. you get it helpless
1: i am helpless i also watched a uh, relic slow burn horror as dan said um but very interesting look at dementia good good performances chilling atmosphere i would rent it personally i wouldn't uh uh, it, it's good. Like I, I wasn't blown away by it as I have been some other horror films. Um, rewatched first cow for the podcast, second time watching it. And it's actually, I think only, only time I've ever rewatched a Kelly Reichardt film, uh, <laughs> because she's usually not my, uh, speed in terms of, uh, pacing. But at the same time, I really, really enjoyed first cow and I really enjoyed our podcast review. So definitely check that out. And I also watched, um, neon's film. She dies tomorrow, which we, uh, discussed a trailer for on another episode, recently Uh, this movie was very interesting I, 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 I won't say it's like great necessarily but it's got a lot of really cool themes that it's playing around with asks a lot of really interesting questions and I thought it was a really engaging film all around plus it's also incredibly short 84 minutes long It just whizzes on by. Um, Really, really recommend people check that out uh, when it drops on streaming pretty soon because it's neon, so Hulu, yay! Was The
0: Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is the Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast Piecing It Together. Every week, we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it, whether the story the character development tone or even use of music every movie was influenced by something that came before and we want to figure out what check out piecing it together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com you can also follow us on social media at piecingpod piecing it together is a part of the all points
1: west podcast network let's actually go back in time for a minute here and let's go back to last weekend poll results We asked everyone which new film release from that weekend was their favorite. It was the biggest weekend that 2020 has seen so far. It was refreshing. It was great to have a lot of variety. And so let's take a look and see what everybody said here. All righty. So, oh, man. Okay. Uh, Some of these, I I don't even know if some of the people on the show here have even heard of them, uh, let alone seen them. But uh, here we go anyway. Number 10 is Guest of Honor. Uh, With David Dulles. That looked really good. Number nine is We Are Little Zombies. Uh, Number eight is The Beach House. Number seven is Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Number six is Mucho Mucho Amor. Number five is Relic. Number four, Greyhound. Three, First Cow. Two, The Old Guard, and number one, Palm Springs. Yeah. Makes sense. It's the most accessible, both in terms of how you can watch it and like broadest audience appeal. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, there was a lot of interesting uh, takes on these movies uh, over the last week. I saw a lot of people like saying, "Oh, it's not as good as people hyped it up to be," and so on and so forth. At the same time, like, like yeah, I don't think the Old guard is amazing by any means whatsoever. But damn, was it refreshing to have an action blockbuster film this year! Yeah. So, mm-hmm. grade it on a curve, all you want. I say. <laughs> All right, so then uh, looking forward to this week, uh, I love that we're starting off with the polls here, actually. Uh, we're asking everyone uh, for radioactive starring Rosamund Pike, which will be on Amazon Prime this weekend. Uh, Which is your favorite female-led biopic? You could choose up to five because the list is so long and there's so many great choices to choose from here. I'm going to just go around and it doesn't have to be your number one favorite necessarily, but what's one that just comes to mind off the top of your head? Uh, Why don't we start off with Michael? Oh,
3: female-led biopics. There's so many. Uh, You know, the one that I loved in recent years was Hidden Figures. And I know that made a huge dent with the awards and won the SAG ensemble, but I think just learning that story and hearing all the history of NASA and everything going on in the '60s with these women doing math uh, to calculate John Glenn's launch, I thought that it was brilliant.
1: Yeah, no, definitely a very entertaining studio film for sure, um, and also great performances uh, from the ensemble, as you said, SAG uh, winner as well, Cody. Um, I think Aaron Brockovich is pretty
5: much the, what do you want to see from a biopic, male or female-led or otherwise? I mean, it's got a great screenplay. Julia Roberts, you know, I maybe I would give the Oscar to Ellen Burstyn too, like everybody else on film Twitter, but it's a pretty damn good Oscar win, you can't really deny that. And it's just a really engaging movie about, like, the legal process and um, environmental law. Who would have thought? <laughs> Kaya?
4: Definitely Jackie. I think Natalie Portman is at her best in that film. Cinematography is gorgeous, and that Michael Levy score is just out of this world. Tom. Oh,
2: oh, nice, hmm. Tom. I maybe say Silkwood. Uh, Ooh, I think that's a really underrated film, and uh, one of Mike Nichols' better ones. And Streep is fantastic in this. I really, it's, I think it's it's really in her top ten, and shares wonderful. Dan Bear. <sighs> oh, uh, uh. Um
0: everything that everyone has said so far, I also love. Um I am going to give a shout out to Francis.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, just because in literally any other year, Jessica Lange would have won the Oscar, but she had the unfortunate bad luck of being up against Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice, which most people would say is the greatest. Best Actress winner of all time. So, yeah, but the the movie is, it's pretty good. And Jessica Lange is incredible in it.
1: All right. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out, not necessarily my favorite, but I I always like to try and champion this film anywhere I can. Antonio Campos's biographical film, Christine, starring Rebecca Hall, uh, which Mm, is, I think, uh, one of the best performances i've seen from anyone over the last decade and uh rebecca hall deserved a hell of a lot more than what she got for that i thought she was truly truly incredible as uh, christine chubbuck who uh you know true story uh in terms of what happened to her and the tragedy surrounding it but very very good film and uh antonio campos actually has um uh, he's got a film coming out uh, this year, actually. Uh, it's going to be a Netflix uh, release with uh, Tom Holland, Sebastian Stan, Robert Pattinson, Bill Skarsgård, Maya uh, Wes- Weskowskia, and Eliza Scanlon. I mean, Jesus Christ, the cast just Ooh. keeps on going with uh, Heli Bennett, mm-hmm. Riley Keogh, Jason Clark. It's called The Devil All the Time. And if that's not enough to get you excited, I don't know what will. <laughs> so... Head on over to the polls page at NextBestPicture.com. Cast a vote there. Female-led biopic. Let us know uh, which one is your favorite. And definitely check out Radioactive when it premieres on Amazon Prime uh, this weekend. Now, news of the week. Oh, boy. (laughs) So, why don't we start off with the big one here. The 2020 Telluride Film Festival has officially been canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. No digital component. Nothing. Just gone.
0: I'm so sorry, Matt. Well, it's I know okay. You're really looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, I, I, listen, I love Sundance, don't get me wrong, but Telluride was the best film festival experience I think I've ever had and I was very much looking forward to just being back in that in that mode again because you know, it is the unofficial kickoff of award season. You do get to see a lot of the big players um debut there. And according to uh IndieWire, Uh, Some of the films that were expected to play at Telluride included um, Ammonite, which looks like it was going to be the film that would hit all of the festivals uh, this year, from what we know. Mm -hmm. Chloe Zhao's uh, Nomadland, starring Frances McDormand. Uh, The French Dispatch, uh, which would have gotten a release a couple days later, I I suppose, Uh, given the climate that we're in right now, even though it was originally supposed to come out over the summer. Um, Steve McQueen's anthology films, Mangrove and Lover's Rock. I still don't really know what the deal is with those in terms of if they're actual movies or if they're like episode one of a greater whole. And then uh, the big one, I think, actually, that raised a lot of eyebrows was uh, Pixar's animated film Soul was supposed to play a Telluride, which would have been a first for the studio.
2: Boy, that's that's an indication that uh, they may have something big on their hands. I agree. Seriously. Uh,
1: I've even heard a lot of people suggesting now for a couple of weeks that Soul could potentially become the first animated best picture winner if, you know, everything goes according to plan. But, yeah, a Telluride debut, I do think, speaks pretty highly to how they feel
3: about its chances. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to see a. Animated Best Picture winner under this current system, but it could certainly contend for some of those above-the-line categories like Toy Story Three. Upper Inside Out did.
1: There have been uh, conversations regarding uh, the film festivals all, you know, all season long so far because of the uncertainty surrounding them. We know that Venice is actually still supposed to uh, carry on, starting on September second till uh, September twelfth. TIFF following right after the tenth to the twentieth. NYFF the 25th till October 11th and at AFI the 15th to the 22nd and they are all supposedly talking with each other working together to try and find some way to do this and ah, ah man I think this is un- I, I I'm worried that this is a domino effect and we're gonna just see one by one each festival you know but the, the digital component gives me hope though that they will take place in some capacity. I that's
0: what it sounds like is that they're really m- moving forward with this digital thing, and no one really knows what it's going to look like or how it's going to work. But I, you know, a lot of independent cinemas are having good success with vir- having virtual screening rooms and stuff. So I don't know why uh, the film festivals <laughs> couldn't do something similar uh i'm also like (laughs) i i posted this half jokingly on twitter that like i'm actually kind of glad that you know one of the big film festivals isn't happening because now everyone will actually be able to get to talk about these movies when they're released at the same time and there won't be this you know buzz that ends up fading over two three months until a movie is released and at which point you know all the critics have moved on from them because they've already talked about it and seen it.
1: You know what I think is the most interesting part of that, Dan? What? The question of who now is controlling the conversation surrounding these movies. Yeah. And that's something that I think awards publicists especially uh, need to be thinking about. Without the major film critics or awards pundits at Telluride to kind of tell us what are the Oscar players to look out for, the power now all of a sudden kind of gets placed into, I don't even want to say the public, but film Twitter's hands, I suppose. And that's a very interesting idea. I mean,
0: it's placed more into the hands of the actual movie's quality and how well they play for general audiences as opposed to how they play for the tastemakers and critics.
1: But let's be honest, though. General general audiences are not going to see these movies. It's us watching them on screeners and digitally. Well,
0: I, by general audience, I mean that in a very like broad but also narrow sense of like the general audience of people who watch these movies <laughs> not the specific voices of the you know elite critics and people who can pay hundreds of dollars to go to Telluride.
1: i'm just very curious though because then once you uh you know have everybody chiming in on something like is anything immune then to critical backlash at that point like Parasite seemed to be a film that nobody could necessarily take down with any kind of negative take, even if they tried to um, necessarily. But I do feel that placed in the hands of like people online, especially um, the conversation around like every single uh, title will just be so back and forth and all over the place. And I think, like I said, I think awards publishers will have trouble controlling that message.
5: I think we'll just see less of, like, the tail wagging the dog like we sometimes do with these festivals and the buzz around them. You know, like, sometimes movies will be just built up and then get nominations and then people see it and they're like, what the hell is this? I mean, I'm thinking, like, Vice, you know, this is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. So, I mean... With this, you know, remove of the mysterious, like, uh, not everybody can get into a film festival. It's not that that's a bad thing. Um, I think we might see a more maybe a
1: democratization of
4: Uh critical
5: thinking. I'm hopeful. But I mean, you know, like Netflix has millions of dollars. They can do whatever they want. So who knows?
1: Well, I have two predictions from this. Uh, Number one is I think that when MYFF, TIFF, and AFI and all these other big festivals kind of roll around. I really don't think we are going to see, quote unquote, big movies play at these in the digital sense. Um, I think if they are able to do actual screenings, you will get maybe a like like you know a, a larger title like a French Dispatch or a Nomadland. You know what I mean. But otherwise, I think that you know you're going to have these tiny, smaller movies seeking uh, distribution in some cases, uh foreign language films, you know what I mean? I just I, I can't see them doing like say like Tiff last year had Knives Out, Joker, like these very, very big movies. I just can't see Tiff making those available for people to watch digitally via streaming. No. Uh, the other thing, the other prediction I have is I think that even if you are accredited as press this year for any of these festivals, I have a I have a feeling they're gonna charge. Uh, for people to access the digital screening uh, room. I think that's definitely a possibility, yeah. <laughs> they have to make money somehow. They have to stay alive. You <laughs> <No, it's laughs> know. And if they have nobody flying in from other parts of the country to, you know, come to their actual festival, then you know, you got to do what you got to do, <laughs> you know? I don't know. Like, you know, I just can't see a world where it's like just submit an application, you're approved. Oh, you get to watch all these 50 50 titles for free. I just can't see that happening. (laughs) So we'll see. Uh, Another interesting note, too, uh, with Venice soon approaching, because that's actually going to be now the first uh, festival starting on September 2nd. uh, None of the films that are playing at Venice are anything that uh, was a part of the Cannes selection. And a lot of times, you know, we'll see some foreign language uh, crossover, maybe potentially uh, but yeah, you know, so anything that was announced for Cannes, don't expect that to play at Venice this year. So I, I have no idea what the Venice Film Festival is going to look like because, you know, we've seen the launch of, uh, Joker, Roma, Shape of Water, La La Land, you know, all happen at Venice in the past. And once again, I just don't see Venice acting in that kind of a capacity this year for a large Oscar contender.
2: True. You know, and, and also, uh, with foreign language films, we are really in the dark. Seriously, I really, you know, there, there's mm-hmm. no future tours uh, having uh, new titles that's, that they'll be released or be eligible. It's really going to be a crapshoot.
1: Yep, I don't know what to make of it. I really don't. And the more and more time that passes by, the more I'm starting to just think that 2020 is a wash, and nothing is going to happen.
0: <laughs> don't even, don't even happen. put that into the ether. Don't even. Well, the they Tony's have it.
3: doing it, so Ooh. yeah. Well, the Tony's didn't have it's shows that the voters different. could see in the moment, yeah. yeah I mean, There's but... still films that are eligible, and there could be a even a virtual telecast. There's going to be something to honor whatever happened this year.
1: I mean, another thing to also keep in mind as well is are they the studios, I mean, planning to sell these titles to Amazon, Hulu, Netflix just to make a buck? And you know, are, are the streaming platform's just going to rule the award season this year essentially you know could be I mean I think they're going to have to yeah. but the problem then with that is like are the streaming platforms making enough money uh, for the cost that they are spending to acquire these titles like is it is it hurting them to make those moves you know what I mean I guess maybe in the case of like Apple and Disney no but I worry about like Hulu for example or um. well Hulu's Disney too now I wouldn't worry too much uh, yeah that's a good yeah. point yeah that's true just, just someone tell me where the hell the woman in the window is. Just, please, somebody. Oh God! <laughs> Seriously, what is happening with that thing?
5: That sounds like a plot
1: summary out of the woman in the window. Yeah. The <laughs> <hell is he? laughs> so we all saw Tenant this weekend, um, and that was great.
2: Yeah,
1: it's you. <laughs> it's boring. In all honesty, what do we think is ha- going to happen with Tenant? Do we think we're going to keep on seeing this, you know, push every couple of weeks uh, to a new date? Or do we think they're going to just move it to 2021? What's going on there? It's
0: going to it, be moved. It's going to be moved to 2021, yeah. either in yeah. February, or February or like the same weekend it was originally supposed to open. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be 2021.
5: And it, exactly. at this point, what do they what do they gain from this? You know, this game they're playing. I don't really get it. I don't yeah, get it, it either.
0: They, yeah. they have said that Christopher Nolan wants it to be in theaters to show solidarity with the exhibitors, which is, you know, very noble and nice of him. Mm -hmm. Um, But at this point, when they don't either, you know, you open internationally where you can open in theaters safely and you hold it in America or you just wait. And at this point, theaters are not realistically going to be open in the type of capacity they need and want it to be until 2021.
5: Yeah, and he yeah. said, I'm not releasing it until everywhere it can be seen. So I don't think the option of releasing it outside of America is uh, going to happen as much as I would like it to. I, th- <laughs> I mean, it would be teaching us a lesson in a way, and I think it would be kind of darkly <laughs> funny in a way that Christopher Nolan never yeah. is. So, I mean, like, go for it, <laughs> i say.
2: Yeah, and they really can't open it without New York and L.A., and both of those cities yeah. are very far away from uh, reopening theaters. Mm-hmm. I just like.
1: I just don't understand how hard it could be to do outdoor screenings at this point. It's harder than you think, Matt. It's it's.
5: A, I I can tell you as somebody who's like on kind of in that world a little bit. Yeah. Like. Setting it up and concessions, what do you do for that? That's you, how you get your biggest money maker. And like, it's just there, there's way more cogs involved than you would think, uh, even mm-hmm. though you think you just throw a screen up and you know, ta da. But I mean, it's you have to do more with less because there's less money and employees to go around at this point in time.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair point.
5: Unless Warner Brothers wants to sponsor like one big
1: area in each major city, I'd be okay mm-hmm. with that. But so, like, I don't see that happening. Yeah. I think that uh, another thing, too, to keep in mind with Tenet here is that I think once Tenet moves, I think we're going to see a domino effect with all the other big titles that are still holding on to a 2020 release. Black Widow, Wonder Woman, Mm -hmm. No Time to Die. Yeah,
2: yeah
1: because they're meant to be the first right and then Mulan is like right afterwards I I just the minute 10 uh, the minute ten and tenant. the minute that tenant decides to move, I think that everyone else will see that as the green light. and once that happens, we will truly have a 2020 slate of films that will be unlike anything that we've ever seen before in regards for award season at that point.
5: I just keep thinking, thank God we live in the era of streaming. Can you imagine if this happened in, like, 1992? What would happen?
3: Oh, God. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing, yeah. Yeah.
5: There'd
0: literally be nothing.
3: ABC Movie of the Week, Tenant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know what movie is going to get a uh, streaming release because it is being released by Neon? Brandon Cronenberg's film Possessor which debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. I had the uh, luck of being able to see it there. I remember it was a midnight screening. I remember walking in and I remember thinking to myself, okay, just based on the images that have been released, the plot synopsis, who is directing this? The son of David Cronenberg, who's involved? I was like, all right, I'm I'm ready. like I'm I'm bracing myself. I can tell you all, even with that expectation, I was not ready for this movie. <laughs> this was this was by far the goriest, most violent, most brutal movie I think that has ever played at the Sundance Film Festival. So much so, Will Mabby and I have had a lot of talks about this. Uh, we both think it's probably going to get an NC 17 rating, unless if they trim it down somehow. But, who knows? Maybe because it is going to be released uh, via Hulu, um, that won't be a factor and they can just release it as is. But, uh, yeah, let's take a look at the uh, teaser for this one and give some thoughts.
2: Interface is active and we're at full power. Watch your levels this time. You just make sure you pull the trigger on the way out. After initial binding, you'll be locked in with no loss of a control permitted during this performance. I can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready?
1: Michael Schwartz's number one film of twenty twenty. Like, absolutely killer teaser. Oh, it was a really well put together teaser, for sure.
2: Yeah.
5: And Matt, does this like is does this serve as a proper uh tease of what we're gonna get like tonally and visually and all that? Yes. Uh, okay.
1: It's a <laughs> slow burn, sci fi psychological horror and it 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 gets really gory. <laughs>
5: <laughs> it kind of reminded me of, like, High Life a little bit, with a little bit of yeah. raw in
0: there.
1: Yes. That's the vibe I got. There's um a little bit of Matrix in it as well. Yeah. That's what it felt like from
0: the teaser, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, I, I don't want to give anything more away than that, but I will say this, too. It's not going to be, I don't think, like... Uh, a mainstream hit with people. I don't think it's going to be an awards player by any means whatsoever. Um, This is a true art house film that, you know, hardcore cinephiles, and I really want to emphasize hardcore, are going to, like, really go for... (laughs) Uh, but another thing another point too I just love Andrea Riseborough. Sh- that girl can do anything I love her so much she's
4: so great she's a chameleon
1: seriously I'm waiting for her to get her due in regards to uh, when is the industry going to just recognize what an incredible talent she is because she's just so versatile yeah she was on my
5: my ballot for the death of Stalin Uh, she like has been quietly making great great star or character terms and supporting for a few years now
1: and I am also uh, I'm also here for the rise of Christopher Abbott uh, who just Mm. continues to just keep surprising me with every Mm -hmm. uh, role that he gets
0: yeah seriously this is very much like not my kind of movie but based on that teaser I was all in (laughs) I just need to say that like it you know it's good when I'm like, everything that I've heard about this movie is telling me, no, stay far away. But this teaser is like, yes, come.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm really intrigued to see what the score is going to sound like. Uh, I
1: can't remember the score, if I'm being honest with you. Mm, okay. I can't remember it. I remember visually being very struck by it tonally. And I also was completely mesmerized by how much uh brandon cronenberg is following in the footsteps of his father Mm -hmm. so that was really really cool to uh be witness to um but i don't yeah i don't remember the score i'm sorry to say uh, other bits of news going around this past week. Uh, first of all, uh, Focus Features has bought Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, uh, starring Oscar Isaac, Tiffany Haddish, Ty Sheridan, and Willem Dafoe. There you go, Cody. There's your Willem Dafoe supporting actor uh, Oscar win, potentially. <laughs> uh, coming off of First Reformed, which uh, Paul Schrader got an Oscar nomination for, everybody's looking forward to seeing what he's going to follow that up with. We even got um, some images, a poster uh, release for it. Supposedly, they finished filming this. This during COVID, uh, somehow. I think they had like six days left of shooting or something like that. Uh, but there's been a lot of uh, talk about uh, this movie based on its cast so far. Uh, so what do you guys think about that?
3: Well, it's Paul Schrader.
2: Yeah. And I'm really intrigued by uh, Tiffany Haddish in another dramatic role. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed.
4: I'd like to see what she can do there.
5: I'm interested to see what they did during quarantine. I, I, maybe that's just yeah. posts, but you said
1: they filmed
5: stuff? I mean, I don't I don't know. There,
1: there were posts of them actually social distancing with masks. Uh, there, there were like photos that Paul Schrader like posted online. And yeah, filming uh, originally was delayed due to the pandemic, but they found a way to go back and somehow shoot the remaining scenes that they needed to complete it. Maybe it'll
5: be our first movie that's set during COVID. I mean, won't be our last.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apple? has picked up the film Palmer, starring Justin Timberlake, Juno Temple, June Squibb, and Alicia Wainwright. Uh, This film is directed by Fisher Stevens, and it is a film that was on the 2016 Blacklist. Uh, Timberlake is playing, uh, Eddie Palmer, a former college football phenomenon whose career was ended after he was imprisoned. After spending time in jail, he returns to his hometown where he forms an unlikely friendship with a younger boy and enters a relationship with Maggie played by Wainwright, who is a teacher.
5: I'm just glad they're finally giving us the Justin Timberlake June squib crossover we've all been asking for, for all these years. <laughs> <laughs>
3: We already got the Jin Squibb Andy Sandberg one, so it's a natural progression. Oh, yeah. I mentioned before uh, The Devil All the
1: Time, uh, Netflix film written by Antonio Campos uh, and Paulo Campos, and uh, you know, that huge cast that I mentioned before, um, that has a release date from Netflix that's going to be coming out on September 16th, and that is a World War II uh, movie. Well, actually, rather, it takes place between World War II and the beginning of the Vietnam War. A uh, non-linear storyline about those who suffer from psychological damages post-war and crime in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Is Netflix just trying to just get, like, all the best picture slots this year? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> also, too, first first initial images from uh, Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things made their way online this week, which means a trailer is imminent. Uh, so that's pretty exciting because that's definitely one of my most anticipated films of the year by far. I mean... The continued rise of Jesse Buckley, yes?
2: <laughs> yes,
1: here for it. Uh, and then, last bit of news for this week. Chris Evans, Ryan Gosling are set to star in the Russo Brothers' The Gray Man, also for Netflix. This budget is going to be $200 million, making it the most expensive film uh, that Netflix has produced yet. Irishman who? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it's an action thriller where uh, Gosling is basically hunted by his former C- CIA friend uh, played by Evans. I mean, could be like something along the lines of like, I guess, maybe like the Mission Impossible movies. You know, I guess that's what they're going to try and go for
2: Or like the fugitive. Mm-hmm. But, but with that cast, I think they're going to get more eyeballs than they did with the Irishman.
1: Oh, I mean, more eyeballs than even what they got with Extraction, which they released some numbers this week. And supposedly it was like the highest debuted uh, film that uh, released on their platform. Yeah, 99 million, they said. Yeah. Yeah.
5: They say that every four months. I don't believe them. That's true. <laughs> Self-reporting. It's like rating your own test.
1: And also, too, um, not so much in the world of film, but I do want to uh, mention the tragic passing of uh, Naya uh, Rivera. Uh That was confirmed this week, unfortunately, Uh, especially for those of you that uh, watch
3: Glee on here. Is there anything that you want to say about her or she was a scene stealer on Glee, you know, even when the show took a turn and, you know, became a very different show than it was when it started. You know, she was always consistent and it's a tragic, tragic loss. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, Head on over to fan questions. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano da Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers podcast. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about
0: this and that and the other. And oh looks, no, no, let's no, no. talk stop, about stop, this. Stop. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. God watch. damn it, shut I up! I think that's enough wallet.
1: <laughs> <we> <laughs> Scott Kernan asks, uh, this is a two-parter. How many films realistically do you think Netflix can get into Best Picture this year? And is there a slight chance Mank or the trial of the Chicago 7 proves to be a massive disappointment? And something behind the curtain, like Mo Rainey's Black Bottom, takes its place instead.
3: Yeah, well, there's always a chance that something disappoints. You know, we won't know until we see the movies. But this year, especially with them having such a deep bench, I think... Look, last year we almost saw them get three movies in the lineup. I'm just, I think The Two Popes was our number 10. So when yeah. you look at how they almost did that last year and how much they have this year, I don't think it's out of their of possibility to suggest that they could get anywhere from three to five in there. You know, they have a lot to work with and the odds are in their favor in this ever-changing year. So, yeah, this could be, you know, a real Netflix monopoly on the Best Picture race. Do we think that if that were to happen, like if they were
1: to really get five slots, do you think the following year the Academy would issue a rule about how many films a studio
3: can have in the Best Picture lineup? No, I don't. know. Because we're heading toward that world anyway where it's just going to be like three studios running things. So... Yeah. This is just a peek into the future.
2: Yeah, and and I think people are going to look at this particular year as an anomaly. Yeah, and not not have any hard and fast rules based on what happened this year.
0: Yeah, this year is always going to have an asterisk next to it for everything. Like even outside of film.
1: (laughs) Uh, This one's. uh, Kai, I'm thinking of you when I read this one. That CM guy 1988 asks, in honor of the 20th anniversary of X-Men, what were you guys, uh, what was the first uh, superhero movies that you guys ever saw in a movie theater?
4: Uh, for me, it was X-Men. My mom there you took go. Me. I, I was two years old. She took me to the theater and I sat there supposedly quiet the whole time, watched the whole thing, and then an obsession was born.
1: You guys are going to laugh at me, but my first one was Batman Forever.
4: <laughs> you know, I... Ah, yes! It's not bad. I mean, it's not good, it's, it's
5: not bad. Cody, I'm sorry. It's, it's so bad.
1: I was, like, just going up to my roommate the other day, and I was, like, just saying Jim Carrey lines from that. I'm like, no! Don't kill him. If you kill him, you won't learn nothing. And it's, like, just so... That's so good. God, it's so campy. I, I kind of do love it. You're right. <laughs> God help me, but I love it.
0: It's not good. It's... Uh, good. That was one of the first ones for me. My actual first was, I, I, I guess, I, you know, I I include it, so whatever, um, was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
3: Yeah, I guess that counts. My first superhero movie in a theater was Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 back in 2004. And it was a very big deal that I got to see it because I grew up in a house where PG-13 meant you could watch when you're 13. So the fact that I was allowed to see a PG-13 movie when I was like, I guess it was... Uh, eight or nine when that opened, uh, it was a big deal that I was allowed to go see the Spider-Man movie in theaters. And it was terrific.
5: Yeah, Michael, that was also my first one.
1: I was 10 when the first Spider-Man film came out. I remember going to see that in theaters and my mind just melting watching that film. I fell in love with that movie.
2: My first one was probably Mm. Superman. Wow, yeah. And I, I, I never think of that whole run in terms of today's superhero movies, but it was there.
1: M.N. Miller Film uh, Rev asks, um, Hi, this is M.N. from Vegas. Uh, I'm a first-time caller. Love the show. What has been your favorite documentary film so far this year? Mm. Cody and I have the same answer, I think.
5: Yeah, I've said it a few times. Rewind is still my number one of the year. And it's, you know, every time I say it, I have to say, watch it with a humongous content warning. Know what you're getting into, but it's really,
3: really well made. Yep. I recommended Disclosure a few weeks ago, and I think that's a really – uh, interesting and you know, incredible look at trans representation in media. It's on Netflix and there's so many great clips in there and just things that will make you think twice about the content you consume. It's really worth a watch.
0: I will definitely second that Michael. Um, it, it's really, really well done. Uh, I also would uh, recommend welcome to Chechnya, which if you have HBO is available to watch there. Um, really, really powerful
2: Stuff. And I, I would recommend uh, Crip Camp. That mm. is a, a very, very, it's not homework. It's you really get to know and really, really come to love these people. And it's a very fulfilling documentary.
4: Um, for me, it's Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, about yes. um, Mark Patton's experience filming the second Nightmare on Elm Street film. And it's just, it's such a beautiful film. And for him to finally get to, Come out and say what happened and set the story straight. It's really great.
0: I've heard really good things about that. Yeah, me too. In light of recent events, has anyone watched the John Lewis?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I talked about it. On, I talked about it on the podcast last week. Uh, yeah, yeah you, you look at it now in a very different light. Um, it's it's very much like R B G in the sense that the subject is the star of the movie. And I think it's a, it's a more enjoyable movie if you like the person. It's a love letter. I uh, know that going in. Um, but it's um, so great to see. It was so great to see it when he was still here. And I look forward to seeing it again now that he's gone. Uh,
1: this one comes from Jess Owo. Um, with a seemingly open Oscar season coming up, what chance, if any, do you see Kaleb, uh Landry-Jones getting a supporting actor nomination this year for The Outpost? And um, as probably the only person here that's seen The Outpost, I'll just say uh, I think Caleb Landry-Jones gives the best performance in that movie, and I think he is phenomenal. I wouldn't include him in my short list of 10 as of right now because of the fact that there are still other contenders on the table uh, that I think are outweighing uh, the direct streaming contenders at the moment. However, should those movies continue to get pushed off or not release? Um, I think then you will start to see a rise in uh, certain streaming-only contenders this year uh, come up. Uh, Other examples include uh, Bill Burr, maybe, for um, uh, the King of Staten Island. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Delroy Lindo, I think, is the only performance so far this year that we've seen that is streaming-only that I would put firmly in prediction lineups at the moment. Everything else, though... They're all there and they all have good work, but I just, I, you, know, uh, you know, it's like you, you got to go with what the Oscars typically tend to go for first until there's no other options left. Yeah, I would also extend that to uh, this question from Kareem Ayal. Uh, Do you think that Kelly Reichardt can get a director or screenplay nomination for First Cow? Uh, Dan, we talked about this on the uh, pod uh, the other day. W- w- what's your read on that?
0: Uh, director? No. Screenplay, maybe.
1: Yeah, that's how I feel about it, too.
4: In a perfect world.
1: Rob Montoya, has anyone heard anything about the French Dispatch? Could it be the Grand Budapest this year with tons of nominations, including Best Picture or Moonrise Kingdom with one nomination? Thanks. Uh, nobody knows anything. Yeah. I can honestly tell you, I I have not heard any. I, no one's whispered in my ear. Uh, nobody has told me anything about the French Dispatch. We can only go by what we've seen in the trailer so far.
5: Yeah, just the thing is he's now in the club firmly since Grand Budapest hit so hard, so you have to consider him for basically every category you can.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah, and and based on the trailer, it looks like it would be a much better uh, uh, entry in the tech categories than, say, Moonrise Kingdom would be.
1: Uh, Fun question here. Andrew Purr asks, the Academy recently posted about if you could swap two directors and have them each remake the other director's film, who would you pick?
3: Oh, boy. Hang on. (laughs) I could start. I have an answer already. Sure. And I think these are two directors with very similar sensibilities, but I would like to see what changed if they flip-flopped. And that is, I would like to see Nora Ephron direct all of Nancy Meyers' movies and vice versa.
1: I would like to see Christopher McQuarrie direct a Transformers film and Michael Bay direct a Mission Impossible film.
0: <laughs> oh! Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Okay, I got, I got it. Um, I want to see um, Pedro Almodovar and Wong Kar Wai swap Ooh. in the mood for love and uh, talk to her.
1: Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my wow. God. I have
5: a cursed suggestion. Okay. Um, <laughs> I would love to have seen Spielberg back in the director's chair for Trevorrow's Jurassic World to see if that would actually be comprehensible and interesting. And mm-hmm. then um, maybe Trevorrow could do Ready Player One since that seems like budget Spielberg, even though I kind of weirdly really enjoyed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess that would be.
4: Yeah.
1: yeah, I would have liked to have seen what Spielberg would have done with yeah more modern technology with Jurassic World as well. Yeah, no, it's a good call.
4: Um, I would be intrigued to see what Denis Villeneuve could have done with Annihilation, and then on the Ooh. other hand, what Alex Garland could have done with something more toned down like Prisoners.
1: Ooh. Oh, I, I thought I'd you were like gonna say that. Arrival. Prisoners is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I like that a lot. Same. <laughs> Jacob Kleinberg asks, I want you to name the following four best decades for these directors, including uh, what you think is the best film in that decade. So Alfred Hitchcock, what is the best decade? Uh, The 50s. The 50s. 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 Hands down, the 50s. And uh, my answer is Rear Window. Mine's Vertigo. Vertigo.
4: Yeah, Vertigo for me, too. Vertigo for me, too.
1: Yeah, Vertigo
0: since Psycho is 1960.
1: See, Vertigo is my favorite. Oh, wait, I guess that was the question. I was thinking of like, yeah. the best. Du- I was thinking <laughs> of the best directed. My bad, Vertigo. Yeah, sorry. I hate to be boring. Unanimous. Uh, Stanley Kubrick. 60s. 70s. Uh, boy, I, I
3: think,
1: think s- mm, I would say Dr. Strangelove,
3: Lolita, 2001. Spartacus yeah but I, I really Love. don't like
5: Spartacus though like a lot I don't like it so that kind of drags it down yeah. but like Doctor Strangelove yeah. is 10 out of 10 so but then like I don't yeah. know He's so, his, his filmography is so sparse with the years between so I guess I would say 60s just for sheer volume
1: I uh, see I'm just saying the 70s just on the strength of clockwork and Barry Lyndon alone <laughs> uh, I guess my favorite movie in that sense would be Barry Lyndon there
3: mine for the 60s is Doctor Strangelove mine too mine too
5: maybe the funniest movie ever made?
3: Yeah, I I also have to say the
0: 60s and it's Doctor Strange Love. I think that's I think Doctor Strange Love is his best movie.
1: Ooh. Martin Scorsese. Mm. <laughs> this is going to sound controversial. 2010s.
4: I was going to say the same thing. That's what I was going to say too.
3: Yeah. I was going to say, there's so many different chapters. He's been killing it lately. Oh, God. Uh, Shadow Island, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Silence, The Irishman. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, Yeah, you know what? I am going to go with that because I think he was still getting started out in the early 70s with stuff like Boxcar Bertha and Mean Streets that he didn't really hit his stride until the middle. But 2010s, it's consistently, you know, just one masterpiece after another. So, yeah, I'll go with 2010s.
2: Yeah, just just the bulk of it and uh, the quality of it.
3: And my favorite film in there is The Wolf of Wall Street.
4: Agreed. Mine is The Irishman.
1: I I th- honestly think I'd still say The 70s. Ooh.
5: What's your fave?
4: Uh,
1: Not Boxcar Burfa, that's for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. um, God, I really like them all, and it's really hard for me to pick a favorite, but... Be Different in, say New York, New York. I know I'm I'm I was considering New York, New York, but um, mean streets, okay, and taxi driver. I go back and forth on
1: taxi driver. Uh, and then the last one, uh, given here is Alia Kazan. Ooh. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's the 50s, it's
0: gotta be the 50s, yeah, it's gotta be 50s because. <laughs> The Streetcar Named Desire is one of the best movies ever made.
5: You
1: also have On the Waterfront, East of Eden, mm. A
3: Face in the Crowd. Yeah, definitely the 50s. So good.
5: Yeah. yeah, it's the 50s. And for
1: me, it's On the Waterfront.
3: Yeah, On the Waterfront. And now uh,
1: let's end things here with Even May. We are going to be doing some swaps. The film year is 2017. My lord. Here we go. Replace the weakest nominee in your opinion from the categories below and choose who should have been there instead. Dear God. Here we go. Best original score. Uh, We have The Shape of Water, Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Three Billboards, Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Replace Star Wars The Last Jedi with Blade Runner 2049.
3: I say replace Star Wars with Lady Bird. For score? Oh yeah, I love the labor score.
5: I listen do it all the time, actually.
3: Okay,
5: I'm not replacing the Star Wars score, you monsters. I'm replacing three Shit. billboards, and in its place is a yeah. movie I didn't love, but the score for War of the Planet of, War for the Planet of the Apes is yeah. pretty damn good.
3: Someone yeah, I'm not
0: taking out Star Paper Wars scroll. either. Um, I would take out. Yeah, I'd take out three billboards and replace it. Ooh, I don't know. I. This wasn't a great year for. I'm. Um, maybe Coco. Or you know what else I really liked the score for? Actually, that year was Murder on the Orient Express.
5: Oh, good choice. I did that
0: one. I
2: take out Star Wars and probably replace it with Call Me By Your Name.
5: Wasn't that mostly adapted music? Not to, you know, first your bubble, but. <laughs> well, I thought it was no, too.
2: No, but I mean, aside from the nominated song, um, it, it was a very light score but it was just perfect for that uh, material I thought it was good
1: best original screenplay we have Get Out, The Big Sick Lady Bird, The Shape of Water and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri
0: fuck you I'm not taking out any of them
3: no you have to well I am happy to take out Three Billboards in favor of the Meyerowitz stories
2: <laughs> And I, I probably would take out Shape of Water because I see it as more of a directorial triumph and put in Itania.
5: I'm also taking out The Shape of Water um, and I'm subbing in Phantom Thread because it is crazy that that didn't get nominated.
2: I'm doing the same thing,
1: too, Cody. So you're all fans of three billboards over Shape of Water for a screenplay? Yeah, definitely. And nothing else. (laughs) Wow. Dan Bear, what are you doing?
0: All right. okay, I'm going to do it. I'm replacing three billboards with mother.
1: I love it.
4: Nice. I was going to say that. That's awesome. I I agree. I agree.
1: (laughs) Supporting actor, Sam Rockwell, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Willem Dafoe, the Florida project. Woody Harrelson, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Richard Jenkins, the shape of water and Christopher Plummer, all the money in the world.
5: I dump them all except for Dafoe and throw in uh, Stuhlberg for Come By Your Name, which was my performance of the
0: year. Yeah, mm-hmm. i yeah, definitely yeah, put yeah, in Michael yeah. Stuhlberg. I don't know who I'd yeah. take out. I'd take out Plummer. I'm Plumber taking Plumber out. Probably. I <laughs> I would take Plummer out probably based on performance alone, but that's such a, like, get her done. <laughs> I love that nomination so much.
1: <laughs> I'm replacing Woody Harrelson, and in his place, I am putting Sebastian Stan from I, Tanya*. He's hmm. good, man. Interesting
2: yeah. choice. If, if, if Stolberg wasn't there, I'd probably put in Tracy Letts for Lady Bird.
3: Oh, so good.
2: Yeah. There
3: really were so many good like people who didn't get nominated that here. You have Ray Romano in The Big Sick, Dustin Hoffman in The Meyer with stories. Supporting actress. Allison Janney, I, Tanya, Mary J. Blige, Mudbound, Leslie Manville, Phantom Thread, Laurie Metcalf, Lady Bird, Octavia Spencer, The Shape of Water. I'm taking up Mary J. Blige and putting in Holly Hunter for The Big Sick.
2: Hmm. yeah i'm taking out spencer
3: and and putting in holly hunter too yeah as much as i love octavia
0: spencer that is the definition of a filler nomination and i'm taking her out um i'm replacing her with
1: that's tough i'm doing holly hunter as well though
0: um i um, dan uh, what
3: about Bean Feldstein?
0: No, she, she's wonderful. That part's too small. Um, I would. My problem is is that I the one that I want to do I think is lead. Um, tell us,
5: and we'll tell you if you're wrong.
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca lead. Hall and Professor Marston in the Wonder Woman. Uh lead.
4: I think it's lead. Yeah.
0: All right, fine. Then I'm replacing her with Rachel McAdams in Disobedience.
3: That was 2018. No, it wasn't. It was at the I, festivals in 2017.
5: Yeah, it was 2018. Michael's right. Fuck you all. <laughs> um.
1: Well, you could just do Michelle uh, Pfeiffer and Mother and call it a day. That was my
5: yeah. answer.
0: Yeah. That was my answer, yeah.
5: and I, I'm kicking out. Answer. I'm kicking out the winner, Miss Allison Janney.
0: Ooh, Ooh. I don't care. Savage. I love it.
3: Surprised no one said Betty G- Gabriel for Get Out.
1: Wait, wait, no. I yeah. never bought into that as a as a supporting actress yeah, contender. It's why not?
0: too small a part. Why
5: not? It's Who cares?
1: Exactly. That was way too Network? small.
5: Who cares? Yeah.
0: True. I mean, yeah, but that's a fucking monologue, which is why she got in. No,
1: no. I no.
0: also like Elizabeth Olsen in Ingrid, Ingrid goes west.
1: I love Elizabeth Olsen in that too. Yeah. No. Uh, all right. Best cinematography, Shape of Water, Mudbound, Dunkirk, Darkest Hour, Blade Runner 2049. That sucks. That's like one of the best. Like, why not? Even though
0: it's the best element of that movie, I'd take out *Darkest Hour* and I would replace it with uh, *Last Jedi*.
5: Yeah, that's my exact same
3: answer. Mm-hmm. I'm taking out *Darkest Hour* mm-hmm. for *Phantom Thread*.
4: Um, I'm taking out the *Darkest Hour* as well and replacing it with *Call Me by Your Name*.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm taking out *Darkest Hour* and probably replacing it even though it's mostly an editing uh, thing with baby driver.
1: Ooh. I love the look of darkest hour so much and I hate to take it out, but I am taking it out and that just sucks on it, its own it is for the me.
0: Best part of that movie.
1: Yeah. It's a solid, line but on. I am replacing it with, uh, da, 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 da. I'm replacing it with mother.
0: I, I, I can't take, I can't knock that either. That's really good.
1: <laughs> All right. And then the last one. oh, Oh, this is going to hurt. Best director, Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Jordan Peele, Get Out, Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird, Paul Thomas Anderson, Fandom Dread.
3: That is one of the all-time great lineups.
0: I agree. I am taking out Jordan Peele because to me that's a screenwriting triumph as opposed to a directing triumph. And I am replacing him... With this is hard, but this is really hard.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I know what I'm doing. This isn't hard for me at all.
0: Yeah. Uh, I have like three that I'm
1: bandying about. You know, it would have been great if you already had the answer before you started speaking.
0: Oh, shut up. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm, going to do it. I'm going to do it. And people are going to think I'm crazy. But David Leach for Atomic Blonde. Wow. Hmm. That is a masterfully directed action movie.
5: Um, I'm doing it again. I'm kicking out the winner. Sorry, Guillermo. Um, and I'm replacing him with Ryan Johnson for The Last Jedi. He was Ooh. one of
0: the ones that I was considering.
5: He might be my winner for the year. I'm not quite sure, but.
2: Ugh. I, I'm, I'm taking. I, this kills me. I'm taking out Greta Gerwig. Uh, and my other choice would be Martin McDonough, but they're both their strength of both of those films are that writing. So I might go with Luca for call me by your name, but then again, mm. the strength of that is it's writing. So I'm, I'm really stuck here.
3: Well, I'm putting in Luca, uh, to go off that, but I'm kicking out Paul Thomas Anderson.
1: I too am kicking out Paul Thomas Anderson. Cause I've rewatched all these movies. And at the time I definitely underappreciated, uh, Greta Gruwig's direction probably the most, But having rewatched all these movies like since then, the one where I think that the directing is more like it just doesn't impress me as much as I thought it would was Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread, actually, uh, which shocked the hell out of me. I would replace with Denny Villeneuve for Blade Runner 2049. I just
5: think the tricky thing about this lineup is it's a lot of. It's like very firm visual direction in terms of Shape of Water and Dunkirk and a little bit of Phantom Thread and then also really strong uh, unity of tone, writing and performances, which is a strength for Get Out and Phantom Thread. It's about what you which you not necessarily value for, but what you find more impressive uh, in terms of the specific movie. And that's why I give Gerwig the win of this lineup, because I think everybody in that line in that film is just operating on the same level from the lead to the extras. It's just a perfect unity of tone.
1: Yeah, I, I I vividly remember back in 2017 comparing her nomination to something like Tom McCarthy and Spotlight. But it's interesting how time and just taste kind of starts to change a little bit. What when you have a good movie, a good movie is a good movie. And if everything just works and there's not a single flaw that you could possibly find, it lays at the feet of the director. Mm-hmm. And you wow. know, I I find that to be true with um, you know those kinds of movies that have that unflashy direction. So.
4: Uh, for me, Christopher Nolan can go, and I'm replacing him with Chloe Zhao for the writer.
2: Ooh. Oh, that's excellent. Ooh. Yeah. That's such a good piece of direction. Mm.
4: It's so good. All right.
1: That's it. We are moving on. End of episode 203. Anyone have anything to say before we go? Wear a mask. Wear your damn it. Yep. <laughs> yes, <Exactly. very> <laughs> uh, Last thing I'll just say before we go. 2014 retrospective MVP Film Community Award ballots have been uh, sent out to everyone. You can vote for those currently. Um, if you are having trouble finding it, it is currently pinned, both on our Facebook page and on our Twitter account. And also, if you head on over to the categories for the blog page, select NBP Film Community Awards, uh, you will be taken to the top post there, which has the ballot. So you have until, if I remember correctly, I think it's like August uh, 15th. Yeah, August 15th. Uh, to fill in the ballot, send it in, let us know what was the best that 2014 had to offer. We still have other uh, podcast reviews coming up for Interstellar, Gone Girl, Boyhood, and Boy, uh, boy Man, Birdman, <laughs> <laughs> the crossover film that we didn't know that we needed. So... Please definitely fill those out, hand those in. I know it's a lot of work. Uh, If you have your old ballots from that year still laying around, it can be a little bit easier. But this is your chance to rewrite history and tell us what you think has held up over the last six years and what hasn't. So there you go. And uh, that's it. Uh, Michael,
3: where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at mschwartz95. Kaya?
4: You can find me on Twitter at filmlesbian.
3: Cody? I'm on Twitter, Letterboxd,
5: and Instagram at codymonster91.
1: Tom? Tom?
2: I'm on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien.
1: And Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at dancin dan on film. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 203 of the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Play, FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback there and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.